Thank you, Debbie, for reading so clearly for us this morning. Let's pray for God's help as we open his word. Father, our prayer this morning is that we would hear your voice, and we need your help to do that. By nature, we are blind, deaf, and dead. So we ask that your spirit would open our eyes, that we might be those who love the Lord Jesus and shape our lives according to his rule. And we ask it for his namesake, for his glory. Amen. Ernest Shackleton was the great polar explorer who led British expeditions to the Antarctic. He wanted to be the first person ever to reach the South Pole. He left at the age of 25. Soon becoming ill, he returned home. In his second trip, he got within 97 miles, but again had to turn back. But in August 1914, he set out in his ship, the Endurance, for what was to become one of the most dangerous adventures in all history. By January, the ship had become ice-locked. Shackleton and his men were forced to abandon ship, which later sank. They were left stranded, forced to live on the ice for long winter months. When the ice began to eventually melt in the spring, Shackleton and his six men spent 16 days in small boats crossing 1,300 kilometers of ocean, rowing an amazing 70 miles a day through fierce storms, frozen sea spray, and frostbite, eventually reaching South Georgia, only to discover no one was there. They eventually trekked across the island to a whaling station. The remaining men from the Endurance were rescued in August 1916, after an astonishing two years in freezing, icy, abandoned conditions. The mission was brutal. And just before he set off, he placed an advert in the Times of London to recruit men, and it read this. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful. Interestingly, a large number of men signed up. But I doubt they would today. Because ours is a risk-adverse culture. We long to feel good and stay safe. The dominant philosophy of our age is safetyism. So we calculate the cost carefully. And if it's too high, we avoid all danger at all cost. We want a safe Christianity in which we carry not so much a cross, but a cushion. We domesticate Jesus to fit my need for culture and therapy, a therapeutic Christ who fits into the American dream. Like Bilbo Baggins, we don't want dangerous adventure, just the comfort of my warm hobbit hull where I can drink ale and smoke my pipe and stay safe. But the question this morning is this, what are the terms and conditions of real discipleship? What is it that Jesus is calling us to when we come to him? What does it mean to be a real Christian? And Jesus answers this as we turn to Mark 8, verse 31 to 38, which must rank 
as one of the most uncomfortable texts in the whole of Scripture. We've got four things to notice. First, a question of identity, then a question of mission, which will become a question of cost as we end with a question of perspective. A question of identity. Over the last eight chapters, the disciples have been at school. The curriculum has been the kingdom of God and the teacher, Jesus. And now in verse 27 comes the examination question, the preliminary examination question. As Jesus turns to them and says, who do people say that I am? It's an easy question in the exam. Verse 28, they told him, saying John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. But in verse 29 comes the key exam question, which is really the personal question, which is really the ultimate question, which Jesus has for them and for us. Who do you say I am? If the question of verse 28 is penetrating, the answer of verse 29 is staggering. Peter says, you are the Christ. That is off the Richter scale. That that is breathtaking. That is enough to give any Jew listening a coronary heart attack. You are Messiah, God's long-awaited long-expected king, the highest title in the universe, the greatest king in history on earth, the king who was to come from God to establish victory, to liberate the people, to vanquish the enemy, to save the glory of God, the hope of the ages, the one we've been waiting for. You are the leader back to paradise. You are the key to the universe. You are the Christ. In 2 Samuel 7, God had made a momentous promise to David that of his line a king would come, the Christ, the Messiah. The Lord declares to you, it reads, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you from your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He will be my son, I his father. The liberator is here. And what is now racing through everybody's mind as they listen in is that the tyranny of the Romans is over forever. Just as the people of Mariupol are are waiting for deliverance from NATO, and to throw out the cruel aggression of the invaders. So the nation of Israel was desperate for this king to come with might and force to throw out the enemy and establish a safe kingdom forever. But if the first shock is that he's the Christ, the second shock is the kind of Christ he's going to be. Because verse 31 must rank as also one of the most shocking verses of the New Testament, as he began to teach them that this Christ, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. Which takes us to our second point, a question of mission. Look at the musts. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must 
be killed. This is not a future possibility or maybe on the balance of probabilities. These are certainties. Ahead, says Jesus, is my betrayal at the hand of Judas as I get arrested unfairly, the the injustice of my trial, the scourging of the beatings and the whippings, the purple robe, the crown of thorns, and the crucifixion at the cross. But wait a minute. Messiah to suffer? This doesn't go together. This this isn't going to work. The Messiah is the victor. The mighty deliverer and great kings don't die for their people. It's the other way around. The people die for king and country. There's cognitive dissonance. This Christ and suffering, they don't go together. It's a contradiction in terms, like saying an elderly baby, or black, white, or wet, dry, or a square circle. Imagine a president talking like this. You're at the Capitol Hill. It's the great day. He's sworn in by the Supreme Court justice. And all the people are there. The media are there from CNN and the world's media are watching. And as he, as he takes the oath and is sworn in as POTUS, the president of the greatest nation on earth, he then steps to the podium to speak in front of the American flag And then his speech begins like this. You see, I will be rejected by Congress, impeached by the House, hated by this nation, removed from office by the Supreme Court, and my candidacy, my my presidency will soon end in death as I'm executed on death row. You'd think, what's, what's he talking about? The musts. If you go to London, there's a very famous art gallery called the Tate. And if you go in there, you'll find, if you look carefully, an extraordinary painting called Christ in the House of His Parents. It was composed in 1849 by an artist called Sir John Everard Milius. And the oil on canvas centers on the young Jesus around the age of six, playing in the carpenter's workshop. Joseph is there and Mary is there. But interestingly, Jesus has caught his finger on a nail and he's bleeding as Mary looks after him in the workshop. But all around him are the tools of the carpenter's trade. You see a hammer and then nails. And then leaning on the wall are beams of wood, ominously waiting. And then outside is a very interesting picture of a flock of sheep looking in through the door, picturing the sheep who need a shepherd that will care for them. But the point of the painting is extraordinary. It is to say that all through his life, from the moment he was born through infancy into adulthood, the cross loomed. The nails and the hammer were waiting for Jesus. That beam of wood on the wall was there for his death and the flock would be saved, for his mission on earth was to die. For the doctrine lying behind this is the sovereignty of God. Jesus is not describing what will happen by accident as God gets out the telescope and sees what man will do. Rather, Jesus is outlining what must happen, for the will of the Father is that the Son should die as the vicarious substitutionary sacrifice His plan from all eternity was that the Christ must 
go to the cross and must stand in and must pay for your sins. So Jesus here is self-consciously self-identifying as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The prophet Isaiah Isaiah said that the servant would suffer. We had the reading. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Assigned a grave with the wicked, though he had done no violence, nor any deceits in his mouth. And Jesus here is being clear with his disciples. He spoke the word to them. That word spoke there is strong. He's speaking the word of God to them. Clarity and force in his delivery. But Peter can't handle it. The Messiah to suffer, it's not going to work, says Peter. So Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. And the word rebuke used of Peter's reprimand of Jesus is the same Greek word rebuke that was used of Jesus rebuking the demons and Jesus rebuking the storm. It has the sense of parental authority, as if Peter is correcting a wayward third grader. He rebukes Jesus, but Jesus turns to him and rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan. The point is that in speaking like this, in saying to Messiah, you cannot suffer without necessarily realizing it, Peter is becoming the mouthpiece of Satan, the great enemy of God's, whose great mission on earth is to thwart the kingdom and impede salvation, to lure humanity to their destruction. Here is a a window into the spiritual warfare around Jesus. Give thanks that he is the perfect son who with clarity and deliberate decision resolved to be our crucified king. It's a question of identity that becomes a question of mission as he dies for our sins at the cross. But the question of identity which becomes the question of mission, now becomes, thirdly, the question of cost. As he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The musts are now no longer around Jesus' mission, but around our discipleship, he must deny himself and must take up his cross. What Jesus is saying is this. If you want to follow me, the center of gravity in your life must move from self to him. If we want to follow this Jesus, we are signing up for self-denial every single day. As one commentator puts it, I'm signing up for a sustained willingness to say no to self and yes to Christ. We must take up our cross. Yet, 
There is no way on earth that the preacher today can communicate the magnitude and horror and terror of what that meant in the first century. To take up our cross, we lighten it. We've all got crosses to bear, speaking of giving up chocolate for Lent or a difficult co-worker in the office. Our, Our crosses to bear. But that sentence, take up your cross, would have struck terror and horror into the heart of every disciple. The cross in the ancient world stood as the picture of terror and shame reserved for the worst type of category A offender. In court, when sentence was being passed, the judge would speak of the cross in a coded formula. It couldn't be mentioned in polite Roman society. The emperor Cicero said this, may the cross never come near the eyes or ears of any Roman citizen. It was the most offensive object ever. The condemned would die in public shame and agony. Indeed, our word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. But the public humiliation would begin after sentence. As the sentenced felon would pick up his cross beam and then would walk with the cross beam, what was the walk of death? It's a death walk, that's the picture. As he, under the burden of the beam that was about to kill him, in excruciating agony and public shame, would walk the walk of shame, which was the walk of death. I suppose the equivalent would be in Texas or somewhere like that in a federal penitentiary. Sentences passed. It's the day of execution. And now we watch as the criminal uh, walks from his cell to the execution chamber. The walk of death. No way back. No possibility of reprieve. A death march. And as you watch him walk, you would say, he is a dead man walking. He's finished on death row and the walk of shame. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you are signing up for the walk of shame, the death march of discipleship. Uh, Churches in the UK are interesting architecturally to me. If you're interested in history, uh, you'll uh, enjoy them as well. But interestingly, all churches that were built in the medieval period, there's two things that are really interesting about them architecturally. The first is this, that if you look carefully at chancel and nave, they are designed in a cruciform way in the shape of the cross. And the second is, rather like this church, um, they are built to face east. They face east, for they face Jerusalem, a cruciform community facing the place of the cross. And just as that is the shape of architecture in the church, it needs to be the shape of discipleship in our church. We are shaped by the cross of Christ. We are cruciform disciples. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor imprisoned for his own theology under the rule of Adolf Hitler. He took part in the assassination plot 
to murder the Fuhrer in March 1943. Eventually, he was arrested and incarcerated in a concentration camp, executed on the 9th of April 1945, just days before the Allies liberated Europe. But in his cell, he wrote a book entitled The Cost of Discipleship, in which he writes this. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments to this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark on discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give ourselves to his death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, this is so counterintuitive. This is something I can't cope with. From kindergarten on, the motto of life is me. Me first. What about me? And the question is, can we afford to trust Christ like this? And the answer is we can. Because the pattern of discipleship is the sacrifice of Christ. This isn't a distant ogre calling upon us to go over the top and give ourselves randomly to an enemy who will annihilate us. Rather, it is the call of a loving Savior who by his grace and sacrifice shed his blood for us for the salvation of sinners. And it is as we give ourselves to the suffering Christ that the great plan of God to remake us in the image of Christ is live. If we poll today, and I ask the question, hands up, if you would like to grow in Christ-likeness of character, if you're a Christian, you'd say yes. We want to become more like Christ. But the Christ of the Scriptures is the suffering Christ. So here's the question. How can I become <clears throat> more like Christ by sidestepping pain? As we face humiliation, degradation, and shame. God is at work in a purposeful way. Our suffering is part of his plan to make us like Christ for our good and the glory of his uh, kingdom. So a Christianity without cost is a contradiction in terms. And I've got to ask you, are you in any way in your life paying the cost of discipleship? If not, I wonder honestly if you are a real Christian. In her poem, Hast Thou No Scar, Amy Carmichael imagines a conversation between the crucified Jesus and a follower who is popular and successful in life. Listen to this. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hands? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound 
Yet I was wounded by the archers spent, leaned me against the tree and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me. I swooned, hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar, yet as the master is, shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound, no scar? In his theological discourse in 1518, Martin Luther wrestled with this in Heidelberg. And he realized that at the heart of the gospel, God reveals himself through his opposite. In other words, you see Jesus being defeated, but in the defeat of Jesus is the victory of Jesus. We see at the cross that God triumphs over sin and evil by allowing sin and evil apparently to triumph over him, so that the way of victory is defeat. And Luther then came up with this formula. He said, there are two types of theologian. Theologians of the cross or theologians of glory. The theologian of glory wants to make it through the world intact, popular, and applauded. But the theologian of the cross will embrace the shame and ignominy of Calvary in suffering and death, and the glory of God will be seen in him. And commenting on this idea of the theologian of the cross and the theologian of glory, Carl Truman writes this, not surprising, is it, given that being a theologian of glory is the default position of all humanity. The way we move from being a theologian of glory to a theologian of the cross is not easy. It's not a simple question of mastering techniques, reading books, learning a new vocabulary. It is repentance. And then he writes this, it is the one who will devote his whole life to the painful, inconvenient service of others. But it gets more specific if you look at verse 35 and then verse 38. For the call of Jesus, verse 35, is to identify not just with Jesus, but with his gospel. And in verse 38, we are to identify not just with Jesus, but with his words. This is a preaching king who rules the world through his words. So to identify with Jesus is to identify with his words. But our problem is that this word of Jesus is no longer tolerated in our society, is it? For Christianity in America is no longer just a minority peculiarity. It's worse. In case you haven't realized it, we have gone from being the moral majority we have become an immoral minority, and our culture no longer thinks of you as a Christian that is odd, but that is evil. Indeed, our culture regards our views as dangerous. And therefore, we can expect more and more laws to be passed which criminalize us. We can expect to be forced into an internal exile, one in which we live in the culture 
but apart from it. And I come from the United Kingdom, and in that sense, I come from your future. Because over there, pastors are being deposed by their own congregations. Clergy, doctors, nurses, and social workers struck off for no other reason than they hold to the Bible's teaching on heterosexual marriage, and for the other reason that they will not pivot towards the altar of progressive woke. American Christians in the future will lose job, income, and reputation. It will begin in the public schools, and then in the public sector. It will move into the church and into the family. How long? before a social credit system is introduced in America whereby your virtue is determined by the social credit the culture imposes upon us. I was talking to uh, one of you yesterday and we were reminded of Cardinal Francis George of Chicago who wrote in 2015 these extraordinary words of America. I expect to die in my bed. My successor will die in prison, and his successor will be martyred in the public square. So where is it then that we will pay the cost? Where is it that the word of Jesus will not be tolerated? And where is it that we will be tempted to pivot and mutate the word of God away from what it really says? Where will we be tempted to be ashamed of Jesus? I suggest four areas. First, in the Bible's clear teaching of the sovereignty of, the, of God over their body, that's the first battle area, the sovereignty of God versus the sovereignty of the individual over my body. In the area of abortion, in the area of transgender, there's the first battlefield. Secondly, it will be in the area of sexual ethics on LGBTQIA. Third, it will be in the area of the eternal realities of heaven and hell. Dare to speak of eternal hell. And fourth, to widen out the uniqueness of Christ for salvation, as we say of other religions like Islam, they are just as valuable today. The cost of identifying with Jesus in a sinful and adulterous generation that wants sexual freedom, LGBTQI, when we say no, is going to be very high. The cost of speaking up on abortion already the Roe v. Wade decision, churches today are being targeted because it's Mother's Day. We will suffer if we dare to stand. And that leads us to our last point, from identity to mission to cost to perspective, our fourth and last point. For whoever wishes, says Jesus, to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For if anyone is ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory with the holy angels. One of my heroines from church history is a woman you've probably not heard of, but her name is Marie Durant. She was a Christian believer in France at the time of the Huguenots in the 1700s, at a time when biblical faith was illegal. 
the Huguenots resolved to stand firm even in the face of imprisonment and torture and death. The revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685 made it impossible for Protestants to freely worship God. It was a criminal offense to gather for a service like this. From her youngest days, Marie used to hide her Bible and then read it in secret. In uh, assemblies, they would gather. They were called assemblies du désert, the assemblies of the deserts. Both of her parents were denounced for their reformed and Protestant faith. They were imprisoned and they died in jail. She was abandoned at the age of 19. She married her husband, but he was arrested and sent to prison. And then eventually she was sent to jail for the crime of being the sister of a Huguenot pastor. This newlywed 19-year-old went to the infamous Tour de Constance, the Tower of Constance, a terrifying circular tower, a merciless prison, no comforts, little air, no lights. Above the main floor was a six-foot hole that let rain and snow into the room where they froze in the winter and baked in the summer. She was put in there with 40 Huguenot women, and she remained in prison for 38 years. Outside the door was a priest waiting to hear the recantation. All they had to say was, I recant of Christ. The papers were ready. Just every day he would come in, sign here. She would minister to the women the importance of standing firm for Christ and the glory that lay ahead. And if you go into the Tour de Constance today, you will find etched on the wall in one massive uh, circle uh, the words, Resiste. Resist. So she spoke to them of the glory of Christ. And the picture in verse 35 is borrowed from the courtroom. How will we testify? Will we recant or stand firm? And either way we go, there's a loss of life. Recant, and you gain life now, but you lose eternal life. Stand firm, and you lose life now but gain it forever. Verse 36 to verse 37 is really a a commercial discussion. We're with the accountant. Put it into the profit and loss. Uh, If you gain the world, if you become a a Bill Gates and and the president of America and a Tom Hanks and a David Beckham rolled into one and you gain the whole world of wealth and power and fame and fortune and you gain all of that but lose your soul, what benefits But to lose your life to save your soul is the ultimate benefits of eternal life with Jesus Christ. The movement then as I finish of the gospel is that we go down to go up. It's a V. The descent of Jesus from heaven to earth, from earth to death, death to the cross, that movement is a V. He goes down and in going down is raised up. And if we want to follow Jesus, that V 
is the trajectory of our descent. We go down with Christ, united in his death. We are cruciform. And for those who descend to death with Christ, the promise is resurrection glory. Verse 31, he will be raised. Verse 38, glory. Let me end with this story because it's extraordinary. Uh, the 3rd of January, 1956, and a, an American pastor, his name was Jim Elliott, and four other missionaries landed on a small strip in the jungles of Ecuador. They'd been trying for years to get to this tribe and evangelize them. The plane landed, they were received, and all seemed well. Just a few days later, uh, they were trying to get hold of Jim Elliott and the missionaries, but there was no response. So they sent an airplane in and discovered on Saturday, January the 8th, just a few days after he landed, that the missionaries, Jim Elliott and his friends, had been massacred by the Ecuadorian tribe. They found the river red with their blood. As they recovered his remains, they also recovered his bags, taking it home to his wife, Elizabeth. But she opened his diary, and just a day before he died, he wrote these extraordinary words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This coming week, and for the rest of our lives, we will make a calculation to stand for Christ and suffer, or to move away from Christ and save our lives. But he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The call of Christ to you today is to walk the death march, to take up your cross, to deny yourself, and to follow me. Let's pray. Father, Thank you today for the good news of the gospel, for the great triumph of Jesus over death. Fill us with your spirits. Give us courage and confidence and help us to be those who stand for you and your words in this hostile culture, this adulterous generation. We ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.